Hello, and welcome back to Archives of Fabella, the series where I can't decide if this is a source of therapy or the reason I need therapy. If this is your therapy and helping you get through the tough stuff of life, I'd love to hear about it. Let your voice be heard by liking Archives of Fabella on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and share it with your friends. Let's see some more thumbs up and five-star ratings. Informing the timeline of Fabella and looking at the big picture, it's hard not to compare Fabella's history to Earth. I have historical figures and events of Fabella that even I'm going, okay, who's their Jesus? And what's their World War II? These are questions that I would ask as a fan, so I'm going to answer them as a creator. Today, I'm going to tackle one of those comparisons head on. Who's Fabella's Attila the Hun? In tackling the story behind this idea, it was important for me not to just take the story of Attila the Hun and insert a character with a crazy name, then call it a day. That's not fair to you guys. And it's lazy storytelling. Instead, I wanted to take the character of Attila the Hun and trajectory of his life, then break it down to basic components. Dastus Haragon is a complex historical figure whom, depending on how you look at his actions, could be seen as a hero or a villain. The two are aren't as dissimilar as we'd like to believe. It's vastly dependent on point of view. It's a cool character to write for, and probably one I'll return to again. I think you can make the argument that there are no heroes in this story, and you'd be right about that. We're going to be covering an expansive amount of years in this episode in very quick fashion. So hang on, we're all going to have a really good time. Last episode, I talked about the monsters we create. Today, I'm talking about the monstrous acts we do. Everyone, myself included, has things they've done in the past where they're like, Oof, that's a bad look. If you don't do that and cringe a little out of remorse, then you're not being honest with yourself, and a reevaluation of your morals might be in order. This story is full of those. Let's do this thing. I'm Dylan Foley. And this is Archives of Fabella. Beyond our world, there is love. Beyond our world, there is war. Beyond our world, there is life. Beyond our world, there is Fabella. Forty-five, forty-three, FY. Fabella year equal to 543 AD Earth year.
Dastus Haragon was a merman with a life as turbulent as the seas he was birthed into. Kingdoms up and down the coastline and continents of Euplar and Oslar knew Dastus as the scourge of the ocean. To most of Fabella, he was a villain. To his people, he was a hero. He was bold and deliberate in his actions, focused on liberating his people from the imperial might of the Avalon Empire. His insatiable lust for conflict is what people remember the most, a life and legacy spent in a sweeping waltz with the spirit of death. Writers penned entire books during his life and after his death, calling him a tireless example of strategy and nearly unstoppable force of nature. This was Dastus Haragon. The amphibious merfolk of Fabella were forced to keep their written records on stone tablets because paper and water didn't mix. Because of this, Written accounts from merpeople were the best preserved records available in the world. One such tablet chronicling the birth of Dastus Haragon read like this. Hail to the spirit of the ocean, for today is born to me a new son of Nastila. On this fifth day of Aquarius 4543, for these many months, the child has grown inside an embryonic sack from the speck no bigger than a pebble into a proud merboy with skin as red as blood, spilled in the water and tough as the rock layering the bottom of the sea. He is already swimming gracefully through the water like the waving plains of anemone. My heart is filled with great joy on this precious occasion. Hail, Dastus Haragon. May he be fiercer than the waves in a storm and softer than a rock as it sinks to the bottom of the sea. Chief Tambuco Haragon, Aquarius Fifth, forty-five, forty-three. All merfolk developed in an exposed embryonic pouch that could be attached to the belly button of the mother or father. At least one parent had to have this translucent pouch glued to their side at all times. They could take turns and be ensnared by the developing fetus, but the child could not develop untethered to a parent. As the written account transcribed by his father, Bambuco Haragon, indicates, Dastus' birth was indeed an occasion of much celebration. He became the youngest of four older brothers, already born to the nomadic Nastilan clan of the South Dalama Ocean under the continent of Oslar in the Far East. The Nastilans were the largest merfolk tribe in the region. They led a nomadic life, constantly on the move along the shoreline following the migration of sea monsters in the deep. Scattered reports found them appearing all over the vast coastline of Oslar and as far north as the Arctic regions of Fabella's North Pole. The Nastilans were a motley, unorganized group, far from being able to plant their own empire that could equal the incredible strength of other kingdoms on the eastern hemisphere of Fabella. They had no organized military, and were only a unified group of sea people by name. Dastus grew up in a rapidly changing world. He learned to recognize every bit of the southern coastline under Oslar. 
They were very mobile people, trading with the Avalon colonies stationed along the shoreline. The Kingdom of Avalon was the major controlling empire of Euplar and the Far East. It arose in the far north of Euplar as an island inhabited by the Camelotha tribe. As the kingdom developed over time, it became a country strong enough to command attention from the world at large. Avalon's control spread into Oslar as they claimed the colonies of Zidsora, Amadaso, and Pelatak. Despite its changes through time, the center of governance in the budding empire was always its capital of Camelot. The legends of Camelot and King Arthur's Knights of the Round Table transcended even the gap between Fabella and Earth. Arthur was a celebrated hero, or, depending on who you asked, a mad tyrant throughout his reign. His death left a power vacuum in Avalon. Arthur had three sons, and they were all dead by the time Excalibur slipped from Arthur's cold, dead hands. The duty of leading the Empire was then claimed by Gavarosa, who said that he was Arthur's eldest surviving male relative, thus making him the rightful heir to the throne of Avalon. While Arthur's leadership was shifted back and forth between tyranny and heroism, all the merfolk of Nestilla could agree that Gavarosa was a ruthless dictator. Nobody was allowed to speak Arthur's name in his company. He would often kill people in his court just because he was having a bad day. Most serious of all, though, for the Nestillans, he enforced strict guidelines regarding trade. The former noble knights of the Round Table devolved into an aggressive gang of thugs to abuse the tradespeople of Fabella. Chief Bambuco was able to assemble a small militia of mermen made up of mounted archers on hippocampuses, whose job it was to protect the hunters as they ventured into the ocean, and an infantry on webbed feet to protect people on the surface. They rarely came to blows with settlers along the coastline. He obeyed whatever decree King Gavarosa handed down from his throne, no matter how illogical it was. This leads us to the next written account we have of Dastus' early life, and the events which led to his birth as a harbinger of war and death. Out of the numerous scattered writings of the incident, Fabella's historians have been able to agree that the following occurred some 15 years after Dastus' birth. Nastella's society was highly reliant on trade. They depended on the money brought in from bartering with people on the surface to keep their economy afloat. Every company had their own form of currency, but the dominant monetary form was the Avalon Peg. Avalon Pegs of the period in Oslar were copper, silver, and crystal bars about the size and thickness of an index finger. The public referred to these as pegs. They were mostly transferred in money sacks and could be split into thirds. Crystal pegs were the highest in value, and copper pegs were the lowest. The Nastillans would travel from village to village with their wares. Even kingdoms who didn't fly the Avalon flag accepted Avalon peg sacks. That particular day found the merfolk arriving on the banks of Zidian. Zidian was the southernmost town under the Avalon Empire's colony of Zid-Sora. Merfolk were not permitted on the docks because one of King Gavarosa's newest decrees was that any trespassing of a foreign person over Avalon borders would be a declaration of war. 
Border towns like Zidian were especially important for Avalon to gain valuable resources being transported over to other countries. Merfolk were required to stay on the water and bring their wares up to the wooden boats on the surface. The Nastilan mermaids mostly brought handmade jewelry and clothing, while mermen supplied boats with wares they'd procured from other regions and food, mostly fish, that could be found under the sea. The following comes to us from the mermaid scribe Narcissa. Young Dastis was responsible for counting the pegs handed over by merchants to pay for their goods. He had to make sure nobody was trying to cheat them because this was money the merpeople depended on to purchase supplies from the tribe. So, when the greedy elf tried to weigh down his money sack with worthless rocks, Dastis called to the merfolk militia to apprehend the elf before he could run away. The elf frantically fought off the merfolk militia, clawing at them with their webbed hands. Chief Bambuco supported his son and called for the thief to be punished. The commotion alerted the Avalonian knights who came to investigate. Before Bambuco and Dastus could explain, the thief claimed that they were assaulting him. One of the knights drew his sword to slay Dastus, but Chief Bambuco took the strike instead. The water runs red on this dark day as our chief is dead. Narcissa Belcourt, Ares 14th, 45. 58. It is unknown what the Merman militia assembled by Chief Bambuco did immediately following his death. They did not attack. Many historians believe they led a push for the merpeople to quickly gather their wares and retreat into the ocean. According to Nastilan tradition, the southern tribe was destined to be split equally amongst Bambuco's five sons. At least, that was the plan. Curiously, all four sons of Bambuco were slaughtered in the middle of the night on the eve the tribal estate was scheduled to be divided. Only 15-year-old Dastis was left to reign in his father's place. By dawn the next morning, Zidian lay in ruins. The entire town was burned, with every last Avalonian murdered in their beds, save for one Entic girl sent to walk to the next town and tell everyone there about the barbarians from the deep, led by a dark phantom wielding a jagged, barnacle-encrusted sword. The surviving Entic girl of Zidian's account was taken by an unknown scribe. I awoke to screams throughout the town. I ran to my mother. My father had already gone out to try and fight. I heard one of them break down our front door. My mother hid me under the bed. I don't know how many there were in the house. The mer people killed her first, and then my brothers. They must have seen the glow of my antenna because they found me under the bed. They dragged me outside and were about to kill me, but their leader called for the murderous merman to stop. This dark phantom of the night was just a boy, yet adults did what he said. The boy called me to his side and told me to watch as his merpeople killed every single person in the city. I saw a woman try to escape a house, only to be pulled back inside by a merman and the door slammed shut after they were done. The boy sent me out to walk here to tell you what happened. He told me his name was Dastis Haragon. You should run. Gather up whatever you can and get out. He is coming. 
Unknown. Airy 16th, 45-58. With a taste for blood now in his mouth, Dastus Haragon could not be stopped. Towns all over Oslar felt the Mer people's wrath. Knights seemed unable to withstand them. Vast populations of people fled from the Nastalins as they moved from what was formerly Zidian toward the heart of Avalon and Camelot. Because the traveling army needed to soak themselves underwater to live, they migrated north along the banks of rivers running through the lands of various races. The Nestilans were also the indirect source of many problems for other nations driving various racial tribes into territories where they weren't welcome, sending refugees over the borders that had stood for so long between peoples. The enemy came. My city was burned. And they did evil things to my country. Does my holy father not know all the bloodshed and death this horde has wrought? My country is abandoned. My father knows it. The army of Dastus Aragorn came here and inflicted much damage upon us. Unknown. 4559. A year into his barbaric push north, Dastus married Princess Ermasi of the Merfolk Panosesiad Empire. Written accounts of the ceremony painted as a quick affair between the merging empires. It was purely political, with Dastus and Ermasi apparently meeting at the altar. With Nastella and Panosesia united under holy matrimony, the Merfolk became a dominating force in the continent of Oslar, and even pushed into Uplar in the north. It didn't seem like anything or anyone could stand against him. Authors and historians later theorized that Dastus Haragon was mentally deranged. The few actual first-hand accounts that remain of Dastus Haragon paint the picture of a complex merperson who doesn't know what they're going to do in the next five minutes, let alone the next five days. Left behind are barely decipherable rantings on the downfall of society. We have an endless supply of self-serving people. Why am I so different? Unbridled rage at being overlooked and tossed away. The kings and emperors of this world don't get to look down on me without the world burning for their ignorance. I come to play. I come to win. I come to take what's mine or die trying. He couldn't walk through the world without causing damage to everyone else and himself. Later descriptions of Dastus Haragon point out that he mutilated his own body. He was the first leader to develop the art of tattoos. Strange designs in black ink curved all over his red body. He sported scars along his chest and jaw that he gave himself to appear more intimidating. A number of stories claimed that he would take sticks from a fire and burn himself in various places. While the Nastilans attacked city-states along the Erskalan River, the Panosessians captured the eastern quarter of Astar. This was enormously helpful to Dastus Haragon's mission to overtake Avalon in a number of ways. First of all, the goblins in this section of the world had discovered a source of magical water in the Orkin River that endowed them with incredible strength. This natural muscle stimulant gave rise to the name Orc to describe a person of enormous stature and physical girth. 
Secondly, the weaponry being forged in this area was some of the best made. Aside from the normal broadswords, axes, and arrows, there were melee weapons no other place in the world had. The double-bladed scythe had a pair of curved blades on either end of the staff, good for defending a person in the midst of close combat from multiple enemies. The dragon tooth clamp was a weapon shaped like the jaws of a dragon. The user would thrust the clamp forward so that the enemy's head would be in the middle before triggering a mechanism to close the clamp and drive 30 solid sharp iron points into the skull. Bladed spinners functioned somewhat like a pinwheel and a circular saw with a blade that could spin with a gust of wind and mow down enemy combatants with ease. With these weapons, Dastus Haragon was unbeatable on the battlefield. Finally, most of the food from the Avalon Empire was from this area. The Nestilans had successfully cut off the Empire's supply of water and food, plunging the starving superpower into economic ruin. King Gavarosa tried his best to ignore Dastus Haragon, but the threat this wild barbarian posed to his empire was too great, making it time to fight back. threat Dastus Haragon and his merfolk army posed to Avalon was not ignored. King Gavarosa sent not one, but 31 generals south on a mission to stop Dastus Haragon and the Nastilans. One by one, all of these generals met their death at the hands of Dastus and his loyal barbaric minions. Following news that Dastus had decapitated the last general tasked with hunting down the brutal merman, Gavarosa had enough. He contacted the harpies of the Great Silver Mountains in Adele, requesting aid from their greatest general, the dreaded Sipus Manos. Manos's early years as a general were marked by his leadership in the Battle of Vuncosolis, in which he slaughtered 1,800 rival Shebans and his command over construction of the Wettermere Wall. The first seawall over the ports of Vuncosolis and Orthos. This made his sixth legion of elite winged harpies the top echelon of soldiers deployed by the Fantasian Republic to protect their most valuable port. At 45, Manos was committed to retiring from his command while he was ahead to spend his remaining years with his family. He hadn't picked up a blade in the two years since he declared that he would never take flight into battle again. The winged birdman often wrote in his journals that his greatest fear was leaving his family fatherless. He'd been lucky enough to have served in the military and gotten out of the bloody business with both his raven black wings still attached. Letters from other kings throughout the world routinely came to Manos during his short retirement. He burned all of them without reply, except 
for one. Manos wrote of the exchange between himself and King Gavarosa in his journal. I have been summoned by the great king of Avalon to deal with the barbaric merman known as Dastus Herogon. This is not a duty I wish to accept. I rode back to Camelot, demanding 6,035 bars of gold, hoping that would dissuade him from seeking my services. Today, a letter arrived from the king's court agreeing to my terms. Though this is a task I see as undesirable, the price is too great for me to ignore. I will fly to the distant lands of Asla at once to deal with this menace and scourge of the ocean deep with the hope that I may return to my family before the year end. This shall be my last act as a commander, and I will end my duty to the Republic with Dastus Haragon's head on a spike. This, I swear, General Sipas Monos, Sagittarius 13th, 4562. Manos arrived in Camelot with his 6th Legion of Fantasia and was given direct command over Avalon's most elite soldiers, including the Knights of the Round Table. All totaled, he had around 24,000 troops under his command when he entered Oslaran territory to combat Dastus Haragon's Nastilin soldiers. His first target was the Nastilin outpost of Tefarlas. Dastus was not present for the siege because he was engaged with a band of dwarves further south. The Tefarlas outpost was led by Dastus Haragon's brother-in-law and mostly occupied by people from his wife's Panosessian family. There were no survivors. Dastus didn't even find out Tefarlis had been attacked until he and Princess Ermasi swam up to the area months later. He countered by attacking the merchants at the market of the north bank of the Erskalan River. They set about cutting off Avalon's entire water supply. Crossing the Erskalan River, they laid waste to the city of Minagon and forts of the river, including Viviku, the second most powerful stronghold under the Avalon Empire's reign at the time. With the exception of Zidian, Dastus assimilated all the armies of the city-states he conquered. His successful campaign gave him enough troops to mount a direct attack on the Avalon Empire stronghold of Amadean. Built in 4543, Amadean was a fortified Avalonian stronghold on the border between Ublar and Oslar, in the Ivory Mountains. Thick, white walls climbed like towering cliffs. It was constructed as a safe place for Avalonians to flee if Camelot were ever attacked. Dastus equipped his forces with battering rams and siege towers, with which they successfully assaulted the military center of Amadean and massacred the inhabitants. The Nestilans did not organize themselves into traditional army ranks. Dastus gave them the weapons they needed to overtake Amadean and set everyone loose during the next rainstorm. It was necessary for the Nestilans to always fight during thunderstorms because most of their numbers were merpeople who could only survive on land as long as they were soaking wet. Dastus timed his attack on Amadean in the night, just as a ferocious storm was scheduled to beat against the stronghold's walls. All accounts of the battle cite the Nestilans as fighting in a disorganized mess with every merman for themselves. There were no generals or commanders of any kind. Dastus ordered the savage horde under his control to unleash hell and they charged forward dutifully. 
The battle only stopped when the last bits of rain descended from the heavens, and the ruthless pillagers retreated back to the river, leaving death and destruction in their wake. General Monos heard about the attack on Amidian, and turned his entire army around to head there in the hopes of meeting Dastus head to head. General Monos arrived too late to defend the city. He later noted in his personal journal the destruction that met him when his forces arrived at the site. When we arrived at Amadean, we found the city deserted, as though it had been sucked. Only a few sick persons lay in the churches. We halted at a short distance from the river, in an open space, for all the ground adjacent to the bank was full of the bones of people slain in war. General Sipas Manos, Capricorn 9th, 45-63 General Manos led a campaign to strip the surrounding area of forces. The hard boundaries between peoples in Oslar evaporated as the continent exploded into anarchy. General Manos marched to reclaim forts along the Erskalan River and bring food back to his starving people, took him to Retta in order to mount an expedition against the city-state of Gulfalgar along the Orkan River. It was here, on the Orkan River, that General Manos set about his genocidal sweep of the tribe's people, loyal to Dastus Haragon. He ordered that any merperson seen in the area be executed. Thousands of innocent merfolk perished over the next several years as a result. Manos became regarded as a bloodthirsty killer by the merfolk. Sad matter of the story is that General Manos' actions had the direct opposite effect he intended. Instead of stripping Dastus Haragon of people and resources, it galvanized the merfolk population and drove more people to him. The Nastilan army numbers multiplied tenfold as more people like halflings and tars were even drawn to the barbarian push north. Dastus Haragon became a symbol of hope for those who had always been cast aside and ostracized from society. Hope that the Avalon Empire would be vanquished. Dastus Haragon retaliated against General Manos' suicidal wave of attacks with an invasion of the Avalonian colony of Amadasso, completing his push through Oslar. Here, he laid siege to Saruma. The city of Saruma was well defended to the point where I considered withdrawing, but I came this far and decided to commence with the attack. The siege lasted for some time. The city fell shockingly quick, and we raised it to the ground. We will proceed to Fort Marali, where I hope to finally meet General Manos face to face. King Dastus Haragon, Pisces 27th, 45-63 Just as Dastus Haragon prophesied in his entry on the sacking of Saruma, the two armies met for the first time a few months later at Fort Marali. Dastus Haragon's merman army of Nastilan barbarians consisted of orcs, giants, and slithtars, reinforced by a troop of minotaurs. They struck just as the first raindrops hit the ground. We arrived at the fortress of Marali at midnight. It was here that we encountered the Avalonian forces led by General Manos the Birdman. He's much shorter than I thought. Perhaps that's why he always stays in flight. Doesn't want anybody to see how much of a pathetic little person he really is. Fort Marali supports more reinforcements than Amadean, 
and it's better fortified. It shall be a more difficult fight than the last one. The fort's close proximity to Lake Ozarath is fortunate. We can slip in undetected on the opposite shore and wait for the storm to make our attack run. I was a scary story to tell in the dark before. Tonight shall make me a legend people won't soon forget. King Dastus Aragon. Aries 2nd. 45-64 The Nastilans overran Monos' first defenses, but sustained heavy losses. The Nastilan forces carved a quick path to the fort's colossal walls, but when they got there they were met by a constant volley of flaming arrows and rocks launched into the air by catapults. The Nastilan army soon gained enough ground to break the iron gates of Morelli down with battering rams. The goblin orcs scaled the fort walls with ease, swarming up the stone barricades. Meanwhile, the giants in their number hammered into the wall, doing everything they could to weaken the fortress. They eventually succeeded in blasting a hole through the walls wide enough for the barbaric army to charge inside and start laying waste to Manos' units. Manos was forced to separate his forces into three sections of the fort, weakening his effectiveness in combating the violent horde. Unable to overtake Dastus with divided forces under his command, Manos took 1,200 troops prisoner and demanded to speak with Dastus Haragon. Sadly, no record of the meeting exists, but legend has it that General Manos negotiated the return of 1,200 prisoners of war in exchange for 240 bars of gold. Dastus Haragon apparently agreed to Manos' demands. The joke was on General Manos, though, because after Dastus Haragon left with his troops, all the gold gained in the trade was discovered to be dragon dung, transfigured into gold by a Nastilan warlock. Manos angrily ordered his legion to pursue the Nastilans. Every one of the soldiers he sent after Haragon washed up on shore eight days later. After the failed peace talks, Dastus Haragon rode north to the Avalon Empire. The Avalon army, under General Manos, met him in the Battle of the Black Land, where he delivered a huge blow to the Dastilan forces by defeating them over the course of the three-week conflict. Though not without inflicting heavy losses on his own side, General Manos swept across the continent reclaiming forts and city-states essential to Avalon's trade and economy, successfully ending the period of starvation the Empire had been plunged into. Most of the successes Dastus had in his push through the Avalon Empire were reversed. This took more of his forces out of the field and began the steady decline of the Nastilans. General Manos moved to oppose Dastus Haragon in the Battle of Camador, gathering troops from among the orcs that had been displaced following Nastila's invasion of their country. Camador was the birthplace of the Camelots, who settled Avalon and its capital of Camelot. The river valley was an important site for Dastus Haragon to plant his sword in his escalating feud with the Empire. He would attack their roots, then attack their heart. By this time, though, there was much infighting between the Nastilans over the heavy losses they were sustaining with each battle, and conflict between various races. This is cited as one of the key causes that weakened the Nastilan army and led to Dastus Haragon's descent. General Manos came into the battle fresh off reclaiming most of the ground Dastus had spent five years taking and was stronger than ever. 
Dastus Harragon saw his army dwindle and become practically unmanageable. This battle was no contest. Manos put his cavalry to work, killing around 10,000 Nastilans in the skirmish. It lasted only a few hours. As soon as the disorganized Nastilans saw so many of their brethren fall, they fell into retreat. Dastus Harragon couldn't call them back to the battlefield. This was the first notable time the little control he exercised over his army came back to seriously impact his chances at mounting an invasion. It would not be the last. According to General Mano's personal correspondence with his family, the once brave savages have torn themselves to pieces. Now, I think, this campaign will not last much longer and end in the most remarkable fall from grace for Dastus Harragon. This has taken much longer than I would have liked. Soon I will be home, and we can put this whole bloody affair far behind us. Nobody ever has to remember the name Dastus Harragon, as he is sure to die a swift death. General Zepus Monos, 45, 64. General Monos and his legions of trained soldiers pursued Dastus Harragon with the majority of his objectives completed. He capitalized on his victory by giving chase and catching the Nastilans at the Valencia Fields. Dastus Harragon waited for the rain and decided to fight the Avalonians on the plains where he could use his cavalry. The majority of Dastus Harragon's remaining forces were stationed on the Valencia fields. General Manos had raised any remaining outposts and eliminated the prospect of any reinforcements. Dastus Harragon had the army he rode with and no one else. The Valencia fields rose on one side by a sharp slope to the ridge. This feature dominated the battlefield and became the center of the battle. The Nastilans first seized the right side of the ridge, while General Manos seized the left, with the crest occupied between them. Dastus held the right side, Manos the left. Dastus's forces attempted to take the ridge, but were outstripped by Manos's units. Dastus Harragon went into retreat, throwing the Nastilans into disarray. General Manos had the benefit of appearing victorious. Dastus finally halted at the Cerro Camp River. By this point, disease and starvation had taken hold of the Nastilan camp, thus hindering war efforts and contributing to a wave of deaths from infection. To retaliate against General Manos, Dastus committed one of the most heinous and downright despicable acts in Fabellan history. He had one of his scribes write a letter to Manos' family informing them of his demise. He even stole an Avalonian wax seal so that the letter would appear authentic. General Manos only learned of the letter when he sent a messenger fairy to his family. The fairy returned after several weeks with a confused response from his wife and bringing news that she had remarried. It took about a year for Manos to learn what Dastus had done because it took so long for messenger fairies to go back and forth. Manos was declared dead by the Avalonian Empire and struggled to retain power as a result. Dastus himself also recognized that he'd crossed a line. In a message to General Manos, he wrote, My life is a series of mistakes. Now I fear I have made one against you. I became so wrapped up in my anger that I did a horrible, horrible thing. 
This isn't what I wanted. The nation of people I was trying to save have become bloodthirsty animals, not the noble victors I hoped to lead. I want out. I don't want this to be my life anymore. But there's no way out for me. I can't retreat to the seas and slide into obscurity. Not after everything that I've done. The only way out for me now is death. Dastus Haragon, 45, 65. Indeed, Dastus Haragon had reached a point where he was as weak as he had ever been. Historians debate why he then chose to finally set his sights on attempting to conquer Camelot. He knew he didn't have the numbers or skill to combat the Empire, yet he did so anyway knowing he was running to his death. The Avalonian capital of Camelot itself was protected by the reconstruction of the walls that had been previously damaged by earthquakes, and in some places to construct a new line of fortification in front of the old. King Gavarosa wrote, The barbarian nation of the Nestalans, which was in Zemurian, became so great that more than a hundred cities were captured, and Camelot came into danger, and most men fled from it. And there were so many murders and bloodlettings that the dead could not be numbered. I fully took captive of the churches and monasteries and slew the monks and maidens in great numbers. King Gavarosa, Ares Seventh, Forty-Five. 65. Dastus Haragon arrived outside the walls of Camelot with around 12,000 troops to combat an army half a million strong. Instead of attacking the city walls head on like he'd done in the past, Dastus led his troops to infiltrate Camelot through houses of worship. They posed as beggars to sneak behind the walls. He started by having his Nastilian troops pillage the churches, ordering that no person of the cloth or a lady be spared. As the spire of Camelot, St. Stephen's Cathedral burned, General Manos assembled his units to slay every last Nastilian marauder, but save Dastus Haragon for himself. The result was an all-out battle in Camelot's tight city streets, with innocent bystanders caught in the middle. As King Gavarosa writes, the dead could not be numbered. The buildings were so tightly packed in that a cavalry could not be summoned, and Avalon's air forces had difficulty fighting from above because the Nestilans were able to dive inside any home or shop for protection. No other city in the world has ever known as much bloodshed as was witnessed here. This day went on to be known as the Camelot Massacre. One Avalonian soldier wrote, the dead were so thick you couldn't see the street. Avalon's infantry was unaccustomed to fighting in an urban setting. It was customary for battles to always occur in wide open areas, devoid of innocent people who could be caught in the crossfire. The same soldier also writes, Troops began deserting their posts to tend to their families. Nobody could hear the orders from General Monos over the chaotic screams of panic and the crash of thunder overhead. I saw someone coming on my left and slashed my sword through the air, only to find out I'd just killed my own father-in-law. 
As this first-hand account of the ensuing battle states, it was nearly impossible to tell friend from foe. General Manos had difficulty setting up a battlefront amidst the chaos of the deserters. The Nastilan pillagers were so widespread throughout the city that he had to set his units up in a line to separate the city in half and order them to push forward. It's unknown when or where General Manos caught sight of Dastus Haragon. Legend has it that they met each other at Pen Dragon Cemetery at the foot of King Arthur's memorial. Other written accounts say that it was at the very site where Arthur pulled Excalibur from the stone. In any case, historians agree that the two of them spent most of the battle fighting against each other. I looked up to see General Manos with Dastus Herogon in his hands, lifting him up to the sky. Many of us, including the Nastalan barbarians, stopped fighting to watch as the vile Merman King was carried high into the heavens, straight through the darkest storm cloud I've ever seen. For a while, nothing happened. Then, someone shouted. I followed their finger up to the bleak, grey sky overhead to see two charred bodies come crashing to the ground. This soul-surviving account from an unnamed soldier at the Camelot Massacre is responsible for many historians believing that Dastus Haragon and General Manos were both struck by lightning. Without their leader, the Nastilan surrendered to Avalon, and the Camelot Massacre ended their number once and for all. Historians tend to agree that this was where General Sipas Manos died. However, the subject of Dastus Haragon, though, is up for much debate. King Gavarosa wrote in his royal journal, General Sipas Manos fell with his enemy, and the vile Dastus Haragon both burnt beyond recognition. This is key, because Dastus Haragon could not be positively identified due to the extent of the damage caused by the lightning strike. Unlike General Manos, who is identifiable through known features to the Empire and his uniform, no such knowledge of Dastus Haragon existed within Avalon, so it was assumed that he had perished. King Gavarosa proclaimed his death to the people of Camelot following the massacre, but a cloud of doubt surrounded the death of this infamous figure for centuries, deepening the legend surrounding his life and death. One added wrinkle to the story wasn't discovered until the year 5995, when archaeologists discovered an inscription next to an old stone figure at the bottom of the sea, covered in barnacles and assorted crustaceans. It read, Here, encased in stone, is Dastus Haragon. May the world remember his bravery in battle, and not repeat his atrocities. Born, 4543. Died, 4589. The Camelot Massacre occurred in 4565. If the inscription on this stone is correct, that would mean Dastus Haragon survived 24 years after the battle where he supposedly died. 
Theories abound as to how this was possible, and the most popular one to believe is that the merman General Manos took up into the sky wasn't actually Dastus Haragon at all, and merely a look-alike because the soldier saw the two of them from a distance. Dastus Haragon, having already expressed a desire to stop fighting, saw his chance to slip away while people proclaimed his death. The truth cannot be certain, and Dastus Haragon's death remains 4565 in history books, with a very curious asterisk beside it. Only the seas of Fabella may ever know the secret of Dastus Haragon. That's it for today. Let me know what you think about this episode in the comments. Be sure to like, follow, and tell your friends. Archives of Fabella is created, edited, and hosted by Dylan Foley, with music by Garrett Ferris and audio blocks. As always, look outside of what is possible and think about what might be.